This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 18, 1998. Prop Air Flight 420, a chartered Fairchild Metroliner SSA-26 with 11 people on board, is taking off from Montreal, Quebec, bound for Petersburg, Ontario. 12 minutes after takeoff, the crew notices a decrease in their hydraulic pressure and requests to return to the airport. 30 seconds after their request, the crew begins to experience control problems. The plane is wanting to roll to the left, but the crew wrestles it back to the airport. When nearing the runway threshold, the plane rolls 90 degrees to the left, fuel spills and ignites, the plane slides for 2,500 feet and comes to rest inverted on the runway. All passengers pass away. What happened to Prop Air Flight 420? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're here with another episode. Before we dive into it, as always, it's super important. That's why I say it every time. If you could give us a follow on social media, we'd really appreciate it. At Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We, you know, we put supplemental content on there, things that uh, maybe you can't picture from this episode. Bam, right on social media. Yeah, even animated stuff. And animated stuff, too. On YouTube. Oh, yeah. We also have YouTube, too. <laughs> Go everywhere. <laughs> uh, just search for Black Box Down everywhere. Also, uh, we've got some new merch that came out recently, a uh, shirt, mug, decal. Uh, it's like in the style of a VOR information box that you might see on a sectional uh, map that pilots would use. Like all black box down references in the mug, like the background in the mug is like a little sectional map of the Austin area. I think it's super cool. I think it's great. Yeah. Don't forget, you can give us, uh, if you want to check out blackboxdownpod.com, which is a website, you can find out all about directly supporting this podcast for $2.99 a month. You get access to episodes early. Yeah. And it helps us make this show and yeah. keep making it. But enough of that housekeeping stuff. We're here to talk about Prop Air Flight 420. It was a chartered passenger flight. Wait, wait, wait. What? Okay. Prop Air Flight 420. Yes. It is today 420. It is. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to peel back <laughs> the curtain on production. Today is 420. We've had some uh, some weird coincidences lately with like uh-huh. anniversaries of flights and uh, flight numbers. This was totally accidental. I think Dennis and I just realized it right before we were going to start recording this morning. Right before you showed up, we were talking. We're like, oh, this is Flight 420. Today's uh, April 20th. (laughs) Little weird. Pure pure coincidence. (laughs) No, no. no, We didn't plan for that. No, didn't intend for that. Just pure coincidence that that happened. And this won't, it's not like this is going to get released on 420. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So this was a chartered passenger flight. Like we said, I was going from Montreal, Quebec to Peterborough, uh, Ontario, back June 18th, 1998. Uh The flight was crewed by Captain Jean Provencher, who was 35 years old with 6,515 flight hours. And First Officer Walter Stricker, who was 35 with 2,730 flight hours. The plane, it wasn't like a big commercial plane that you picture, you know, that we talk about Uh a lot. This was a 21-year-old Fairchild Metroliner SA-226 with 28,931 hours on it. It's like a smaller twin turboprop, so it's the kind with like two propellers. Okay. And at most, it could seat 22 passengers. This particular flight had nine passengers on board. There was like a charter flight for General Electric employees who were uh, commuting to a facility for work. Okay. So that's why there are 11 people on board near total. Not a big commercial plane like you normally think of. It's just a smaller twin propeller plane. Okay. This flight took off from Montreal at 7.01 in the morning. Remember, it's a commuter flight. They're taking off early in the yeah, morning. Okay. They're cleared to climb up to 16,000 feet. 12 minutes later at 7.13, the crew advised air traffic control that they had a decrease in hydraulic pressure and they requested to return back to Montreal. So they were immediately cleared to turn around and descend to 8,000 feet. 
And during this time, you know, the crew indicated there was no onboard emergency. However, a few moments later, the crew started having trouble with the controls and the left wing overheat light illuminated, indicating some engine trouble. Uh-huh. But then 30 seconds later, the light went out before they could even like do any checklist stuff. You know, they start pulling out the checklist like, okay, let's see what that uh-huh. is. But then the light just turns off. So it was like overheating. It was like hot. And then they're like, and then it cooled down. Right. Well, all they know is that the light just turned off. Like, oh, okay. Well, I guess whatever was a problem isn't anymore. Okay. So, you know, they, like I said, they didn't even get to the checklist. And they had no idea about the hydraulic, like what was causing the hydraulic fluid pressure. Correct. And I believe on this plane, there's two separate hydraulic systems, just for reference. Mm-hmm. One of them controls flaps on the plane and the other one controls landing gear. And I believe at the time when they saw this warning, they were seeing a message about both hydraulic systems losing pressure. Okay. So then uh, a couple of minutes later at 718, the left engine appeared to be on fire and the crew shut it down. So the captain took over the controls and had to use an abnormal amount of right aileron pressure to keep the aircraft on its heading. We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. you know, the asymmetric thrust, you know, things are acting weird. But I think even accounting for asymmetric thrust they were having to put more pressure than necessary. They were using, you know, we've talked about trim before, uh-huh. you know, where you can, you know, adjust a control that way it relieves the amount of pressure you have to apply. This particular plane had aileron trim and they had to adjust it all the way to the right and also fight with the plane in order to keep it, you know, going on the heading that they wanted. Okay. So the crew notified air traffic control that their left engine was shut down and air traffic control suggested they fly instead to a different airport, the Mirabel airport, which was a little northwest of the original airport because it's closer. It's like, oh, you know, if you shut down an engine, you're having trouble. You know, there's also this other airport you can land at. It's closer for you. So the crew agrees. And then about 90 seconds later, the crew informed air traffic control that flames were coming out of the engine nozzle. Yeah, that's that's, that's not where you want flames. No, you definitely don't (laughs) want that. In fact, I think it was one of the passengers who alerted the crew to it. Remember, it's a smaller plane. And I think one of the passengers, you know, tells him, hey, there's fire coming out of the engine. So a couple minutes after that, at 723, the crew informed air traffic control that the left engine was no longer on fire. But then it, three and a half minutes later, the fire started again. Uh-huh. Then during this time, the aircraft was getting harder to control. Uh, you know, remember, it's, it's trying to roll. They set the aileron trim to its maximum setting. Then a couple minutes after that, at 727, while they were on short final, which means they're, they're about to land. You know, they're on final. Mm-hmm. They're lined up with the runway. They're pretty low to the ground. They lowered their landing gear, but only two indicator lights came on. There should have been three. As in only two of the wheels went down, presumably? Correct. So like what that would tell them is that they get confirmation that two wheels are down. I believe it was the nose wheel and the right wheel illuminated that they were down and the left wheel did not come on. So again, we've talked about this before. It doesn't necessarily explicitly mean that that wheel didn't come down. Yeah. You know, the light could be burned out. There could be a fault in the circuit. Who knows? But all it tells you is there is no positive confirmation that that wheel is down. It's possible it's down, but it mm-hmm. might not be. You know, it's, it probably isn't. Yeah. So when they were near the threshold of the runway, so the threshold of the runway is like the very edge of the runway. So they're, you know, about to land. They're right over the edge of the runway. The left wing failed and it broke upwards. It just broke off. It broke off. So this caused the plane to rotate to the left and invert on the runway. So it rolled left and then, you know, slammed down on the runway upside down. Upside down. Yeah. So, man, they were so close. They were so close. Chris, this is incredibly frustrating you know, uh, because there, they, you know, there was an emergency, there mm-hmm. were, you know, emergency services on the runway ready to meet them, you know, firefighters, yeah. ambulances, stuff like that. The firefighters say that the airplane was about 25 feet off the ground. Oh, my God. They were, they were maybe three to five seconds from landing. Oh, my God. They were about to land and that left wing broke, rolled. 
slid upside down. It caught fire and it slid about 2,500 feet down the runway. And it came to rest on the left side of the runway. And like I said, firefighters were already there. They quickly got to the wreck. You know, they got the fire immediately put uh-huh. out. But, you know, everyone on board was fatally injured uh, and the plane was destroyed. That's so tragic. That is so close. They were so close. And again, I mean, we're going to get into it, but it's like, this is this is one of the more frustrating incidents that we've had to research. Not because like, you're like, oh my God, all these things went wrong. All these people messed up. It's like, these people were so close. They almost made it. I mean, it even, yeah. You could like, see the runway. You're right on top of it. You're like, oh, we're there. Yeah. And they like changed runways to go to a closer one. But changed airports even, right? Like that. That's what I meant. That's what <laughs> yeah, I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then they were like, had struggled and made, figured it out and had made, oh man. Mm-hmm. You know, they went ahead and examined some of the, the passengers and revealed some of them sustained injuries from fire or toxic gas inhalation. You know, because when there's a fire, things burn and, mm-hmm. you know, you get uh, toxic gases. Although more stringent requirements might not have prevented these fatalities, Combustion of the seats and the production of toxic gases as a byproduct of combustion could have been delayed if more stringent requirements had been in effect. So it's also possible that maybe if the seats had been made out of different materials that were less toxic, maybe some people could have even survived. Mm. So, yeah, it's uh, got so close, right? I know. Also, I mean, if I'm sure being upside down makes it a lot harder to get out. Yeah. Plus, also, if you think about just the force of it, mm. you know, the force of landing, it's not like you're going super slow. Yeah. We're going to get into some more specific details here that are going to, like, give you more context for it. Uh-huh. But, I mean, if you think about it, you know, even if they're coming in to land, they're still going pretty fast. And, you know, if you think about, like, getting into a car crash... And how mm-hmm. violent that is. Like that only did they come in probably faster than you drive on a highway. Then they then yeah. flipped on top of that. And, you know, it's 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 just a lot of forces going on. It's uh it's really a violent thing that happens. And also on top of that, falling 25 feet. Yeah. Yeah. So the investigation was carried out by the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, and it turned out there was a history with certain safety issue on this type of aircraft. Remember, this is a Metroliner SA-226. It also affected the SA-227. These are very similar planes. They're almost identical. These past instances involved the brake systems on these type of aircraft. One instance occurred in July of 1988, where an SA-227 lost hydraulic pressure and the left wing overheat warning light came on. The tires burst and the left wheel well sustained severe fire damage. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Uh This other previous flight made an emergency landing in Anchorage, Alaska. And there was another flight in 1990 where an SA-226 aircraft had the same thing happened and they landed in Manitoba. So starting to see a little bit of a pattern. Yeah. So the investigators examined the brakes on this aircraft and they found the piston housing for the left outboard brake assembly showed severe melting. The bottom of two of the piston cylinders was a blackish green color, which Uh was indicative of overheating. Other parts of the brake assembly were blackened and covered in soot. And the bearings in the outboard wheel were exposed to excessive heat so much that all of the grease had been burned off and they were totally dry. Oh, and, and this is, is that where the fire started? Well, remember, they saw a fire in the left engine and they also got a left wing overheat warning. Mm-hmm. Remember, not like a fire warning in the engine, a left oh. wing overheat warning. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the left wing overheat sensor in this plane is in the wheel well. Oh. So there was also uniform heat discoloration, heavy lining pressure marks were on both sides over the full circumference of the brake discs, and the steel in the discs showed a grayish-blue coloration, which is indicative of overheating. And the discoloration of the brake disc 
is a sign of tempering by exposure to heat. And this discoloration and the shade of the color show that the discs were exposed to temperatures exceeding 600 degrees Celsius for a sustained period. That's about the equivalent of about 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. And in order for it to get to that color and have that kind of discoloration, that means it would have to have been exposed to that temperature for at least five minutes to get to that color. So it was incredibly hot for a sustained period of time. Yeah. And that the fire that it was that, that was there, would it get that hot? Or I mean, is this just from like the breaks, just like not, I mean, working correctly? Well, right. Well, or I both. think the, the question becomes, where did the fire start? And what mm-hmm. caused a fire to get that hot? Like the question should become, can an engine fire get that hot? Or was there mm-hmm. some other source that would have caused a fire to burn that intensely for that period of time? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to answer that yet because <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get to that. But, yeah, you're thinking along the right path here. And was it only that the left one? Correct. Was? It was okay. only on the left side. And remember also when they were coming into land, their left landing gear light didn't come on. They, they got two other oh, that's lights, right. that's not right. that one. Yeah, yeah. On top of all this, manufacturer information and tests show that ignition occurs when the tires are exposed to a temperature of 482 degrees Celsius. And remember, we've talked about this before, tire material supports combustion and generates an intense fire as long as there's oxygen available. Remember, we talked about this in the value jet crash where they were uh, they put the oxygen generators on tires uh-huh, uh-huh. and the tires caught fire. And then the oxygen generators gave it oxygen to feed the fire. Uh-huh. So, you know, if if this this is starting to support the fact that a fire started here, the tires helped support that fire and, gen, you know, make the combustion worse and make the fire more intense. Yeah, the tires just are like material to burn. Exactly. So remember, we talked about the brakes and how there had been incidents with similar planes involving their brakes in the past. And this plane has two parking uh, brake valves, one for each side of the aircraft. And both valves were inspected and there were no deficiencies found. Under previous ownership of the plane, there was work done in accordance with an airworthiness directive on the parking brake valves in order to correct a problem. And this problem had to do with residual brake pressure caused by the parking brake control cable. So you know what, like a parking brake, cars have parking brakes. Like you used to Mm -hmm. be, you used to have to like pull a little handle up or sometimes you got to like stomp on that little pedal on the left. And and it's the same thing with the plane. There's a parking brake, same thing, you know. Um, So before taxiing or takeoff roll, the pilots must ensure that the parking brake is fully released. Just like you get in your car, you want to make sure that the parking brake's not on. Yeah, I've driven off with it on. <laughs> I think everyone, everyone's probably done that at some point. <laughs> I don't know. How, how, does it, how does it let you drive off with it on? It shouldn't. It's, it's not like it totally blocks your wheel from moving. It just makes it much more difficult. It just okay. gives you more resistance. So like in a car, if you try to drive with your parking brake on, you have, just, you have to give it a lot more gas in order oh to get it to move. Yeah. Then it would be the same thing in a plane. And then for this kind of plane, like just moving the parking brake control knob to off isn't enough to ensure that the brakes get released. So you have to switch to off. And the system also requires that pressure be applied to the brake pedals to fully release the parking brake because oh. there might be some residual pressure even with the knob in the off position. So, so you would have to be like, like pull it up? Well, right. You, you like take the parking brake off and then you have to stomp on the brakes to get rid of any pressure that might be in there. You stomp. That, that seems, that's a little counterintuitive that you're like, Hit the brakes to release the brakes. But you think about it, if in like cars that have the parking brake pedal on the left, that's how you turn it off. You stomp on that pedal again, like after it's all the way down and then you release it. Yeah, I guess when you when you push it up, it's like mechanizing it. Like Right. Yeah. I will say the counter argument is that after you release the parking brake in a car, you then don't stomp on your brakes yeah. on, the, on the other brake pedal to release it. But it's just something that they needed to be aware of. 
And just like a car, just like we talked about, taxiing and takeoff in this plane with the brake partially engaged can result in increased power necessary to taxi, longer takeoff rolls, and hot, burned, or seized brake components with a possible fire in the main gear well. So did they not, they didn't release the parking brake or did they not stomp on it? We're going to get there. We're setting the stage. But so far, what we know is if it's not fully disengaged, it might, you know, require more power, just like a car, and it could get hot and Mm -hmm. heat can lead to a fire. We know this from other episodes that we've talked about in the past. And, oh, I was going to say other other things that could happen, you know, like I said, uh, longer takeoff rolls, hotter seized brakes, you might have tire failure, overheated hydraulic fluid. So because of all these reasons, crews of this plane type tend to not trust the parking brake. You might understand why. <laughs> yeah. The brake sometimes stays on after being released. And, you know, anecdotally, pilots say it seems to happen more often in the winter. That makes sense, especially in Canada. They're yeah. in Canada. Cold. Remember the other incidents I talked about were in mm-hmm. Anchorage. I, and- I was <laughs> I was wondering about that. I was like, man, is this plane just really popular in like the north? Uh, it's just popular in general. I think, you know, a lot of these places might be like a little more remote and don't need big planes to get people in and yeah. out. So I think it's like a good place to operate this kind of plane. But that being said, this particular incident was in June. This was not a winter incident. Okay. So because the pilots don't trust or they don't like the parking brake. Mm-hmm. They often will use wheel chocks instead of parking brakes. And that's just like kind of like bricks that they put around the like wheels. Wedges. Yeah. They like they they just shove in manually after it lands. Right. In order just to like keep it from rolling around. Mm-hmm. And wheel chocks were actually used while the engines were started on the day of this accident. However, it couldn't be determined whether the crew used a parking brake between engine start and takeoff. Mm. The brake system is equipped with two shuttle valves. And the shuttle valves react to pressure on the brakes and allow either member of the crew to apply brakes without having to make a selection. And there's one shuttle valve on each side. Examination of the shuttle valves revealed no deficiencies. So theoretically, if both flight crews simultaneously apply equal pressure to the brakes, this type of shuttle valve can physically center itself, thereby retaining hydraulic pressure in the brake line. Tests conducted to demonstrate that the valves would center in this manner did not result in the valve centering. So they're just they're they're just kind of going through all the possibilities. Like, well, maybe theoretically, if you know both people stomp on the brakes at the same time, it could cause a problem with the brake valves. And they tested oh. it, and they couldn't recreate that in testing. But they say, in theory, this could happen. So they're saying if the captain and the first officer both stomped to release at the exact same time. It's possible that that could have caused it. Yeah. And again, they say in theory it's possible, yeah. but when they tested it, they couldn't recreate it. Now, you know how all, how this goes. Like mm-hmm. everything has to be tested. You have to be, they have to be, uh, investigating boards have to be 100% certain when they write up these reports. I always like riding a bike, right? I think it's, uh, it was always super fun when I was a kid. It felt like it was super freeing. Like you go wherever you wanted. But as I've gotten older, I'll admit it, I'm a little lazier, a little more out of shape. <laughs> it's a little more difficult for me to, uh, to justify using a bike. But what about an electric bike as an alternative? Finally, there's an e-bike made for everyone. Electric e-bikes. They start at just $799. They're the fastest growing e-bike company in the U.S. It's easy to see why. Electric e-bikes are affordable, customizable, they ship for free, fully assembled, plus they quickly fold in half, no bike rack or truck required. Leave the car at home, save on gas, save the planet when you explore and commute on electric bikes. I've been using an electric bike for a while now. I try to find any excuse possible to use it, Uh, you know, whether it's going to a grocery store that's nearby, restaurants in my area, things that are maybe just like a little too far to walk or I wouldn't want to, you know, get out there and spend all that time walking. I just hop on the bike. Trust me, I spend 
every waking moment trying to come up with an excuse to get on my electric bike and go somewhere super fast, super convenient. Don't have to get my car out. Sometimes it's faster. Don't have to look for parking. Just ride right up to the front of the store, lock my bike, go in, do whatever I need to do. The electric e-bikes mission is simple. Make e-bikes accessible for everyone. They're surprisingly affordable, starting at just $799. It's way less than competition. Adjustable and customizable, so they're comfortable, even for people who normally don't ride bikes. Electric e-bikes fold up, ship free, come pre-assembled and pre-charged. You'll be on the road in no time. I can't stress the pre-assembled enough. I was afraid I was going to take me a couple hours to put it all together. It's just folded in half. You just unfold it, you know, lock it in together. You're ready to go. The battery's hidden away. There's even an LCD display featuring speed, range, adjustable power level, thousands of Rave five-star reviews. Uh, you can cover up to 45 miles at up to 28 miles per hour on just a four to six hour charge. Way more eco-friendly than a car. Explore the great outdoors or the city while keeping the air clean. Different bike models and accessories provide optimal comfort, storage, safety. So join the affordable e-bike revolution. Go to electricebikes.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN. Get a free foldable, mountable bike lock with any bike purchase. That's a free bike lock when you use code BLACKBOXDOWN at L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-E-S.com. Uh, the bike lock's actually really cool, too. I love using it. Anyway, like we said, free bike lock when you use code BLACKBOXDOWN at electricebikes.com. Worried about all the chemicals you're using to keep your yard looking its best? Traditional lawn care lays down 90 million pounds of pesticides each year. Sunday's different. They're on a mission to change how people care for their yards. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. Their custom plans include fertilizer and everything you need to easily care for your lawn. And with ingredients like seaweed, iron, molasses, you can feel good with kids and pets being around. All you have to do is visit GetSunday.com, put in your address, and their lawn analysis tool does the rest. They then use soil and climate data to create a personal nutrient plan delivered to your door when you need it. Just attach the ready-to-use pouch to a garden hose and spray. It takes less than 15 minutes. Best of all, the stuff really works. Sunday's offering our listeners 20% off. Full season plants start at just $129. You can get 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com slash BlackBoxDown. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash BlackBoxDown. Do you ever find yourself awake in the middle of the night reading real-life stories that make your skin crawl? The creepy history behind Victorian nursery rhymes or tales of sleep paralysis demons? Perhaps you've seen the haunting images of corpses on Mount Everest, read the last meal request of death row prisoners, or experimented with seances and spirit boards. If you've ever wondered, hey, what the heck exactly is necrocannibalism? Well, then 30 Morbid Minutes is the new podcast for you. Hosted by Elise Willems and Jessica Vasami, each episode investigates a new topic ranging from the macabre to morbid to downright creepy. Sourced straight from history and the headlines of today. So subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even listen to podcasts. New episodes are every Tuesday, and they're available on Mondays for Rooster Teeth First members. So, you know, it was discovered that, you know, when they did their takeoff roll, like when they lined up on the runway and they, you know, they accelerated to take off, the aircraft was pulling to the left and the crew had to use right rudder pressure to stay aligned with the center line of the runway. So as a result of this, they had to extend their takeoff roll for six seconds longer than normal. And it also uh -huh. took longer on the ground for them to take off. So normally this plane in this configuration would take about 1800 feet of runway to take off. Because it took them, you know, longer, it took them 4,000 feet to take off. So they took off way further down wow. the runway than normal. And pulling left as if there was a break on the left exactly. wheel. Right. Mm. So it was pulling to the left. It took them way longer to take off. That all indicates that the left brake was dragging. Yep. And then subsequent examination of the left brake assembly confirmed it. Neither the aircraft's pull to the left nor the length of the takeoff roll prompted the crew to take any action other than to continue the takeoff. Because these cues weren't strong enough to elicit a reject response from the crew, 
you know, they didn't suspect that the left brakes had dragged or overheated. You know, they and you know they take off and they immediately retract the landing gear, and the overheated brake and wheel assembly was retracted into that enclosed wheel well, where it was probably already like heated up and on fire possibly or right. smoking or so the brake was really hot. It gets put into the close proximity in that wheel well with the tire and those other mm. surrounding structures, causing a fire. And like we said, you know, initially they said, you know, they had a loss of hydraulic pressure. It could be that the fire melted the hydraulic lines and caused them to start spilling. Mm. You know, they got a, a, a left wing overheat warning that sensors in the wheel well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these other things. And this aircraft was not equipped with a means to alert the crew of overheated brakes. When the aircraft was certified, brake overheat detection systems were not required. And they're still not required for this class of aircraft. And how quickly did they get these warnings after uh, takeoff? They got the loss of hydraulic pressure mm-hmm. pretty quick after takeoff. It was about 12 minutes after takeoff that they that they saw the first warning message about the hydraulic pressure. Is that the one that flicked? No, no. The heat was the one that flicked on and then flicked off. Correct. Oh, did it? Because maybe it melted. Right. That's uh, You nailed it. That's, <laughs> that's it. That is actually exactly what happened. The sensor just melted and burned. And that's why the light turned off. Yeah. So for dragging to occur in the components of the left brake assembly at the same time, the problem must have originated upstream of the brakes. All system components involved were examined against several criteria to identify any failure, you know, if it's poorly adjusted linkages, incompatible parts, or part malfunction. And some deficiencies were identified in the master cylinders, but none of these deficiencies were found to have caused brake system pressure to be maintained. Two modes of master cylinder were installed in each of the two brake systems, and in the circumstances, it was essential to examine whether they were adjusted to manufacturer specifications, whether there's a possibility of interference that it could have caused the brake pressure to lock on. So, I mean, they're, you know, they've zeroed in on the brakes, and they're just like, why did this happen? And, you know, these examinations that I talked about revealed no problems so far. They're looking through all the different possibilities. Mm -hmm. Examination of the brake shuttle valves revealed no deficiencies. The tests regarding the centering of the shuttle valves with both crews simultaneously applying equal brake pressure were inconclusive. Like I said, you know, they said in theory it's possible, but they couldn't recreate it. Numerous tests were conducted to demonstrate that residual pressure as low as 50 PSI in the brake system could cause dragging and subsequent overheating of the brake components during the takeoff run. This overheating transferred to the fluid in the brake lines causes the fluid to expand, thereby increasing pressure in the brake system. This increased pressure further aggravates dragging and overheating to the point where normal operating temperatures are exceeded. The crew would probably not have noticed an initial braking pressure of 50 PSI during the takeoff run. So what that last part is saying is, you know, if the brakes were dragging, they would have started overheating, which would have caused the brake fluid to expand, which would have increased pressure in the system, which would have potentially caused it to clamp down more, increasing the drag. Oh, so it's so like, it made it even worse. Right. A self like like a self-perpetuating cycle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's definitely very possible. And in fact, probable. The investigators also found issues with hydraulic fluid in this aircraft. I'm going to give a lot of part numbers here uh, because they're talking about like specific uh, hydraulic fluids. Uh, The hydraulic fluid for this system is called MILH83283. The approved fluid for landing gear struts is MILH5606. However, after analysis of the hydraulic fluid taken from this crash, it was discovered that the 83283 fluid, which was the hydraulic fluid, was contaminated with the 5606 fluid, which was the fluid from the landing gear. This mixture was also found on other aircraft within prop air and in another airline. Oh. In general, the mixed hydraulic fluids had the qualities of the 83282 fluid in regards to smell, look, feel, viscosity, 
However, the 5606 contamination in the hydraulic system containing the A3282 fluid lowers the flash point of the fluid. So it makes it catch fire sooner? It makes it catch fire at a lower temperature. That's exactly oh. it. And this was because it, this was not an accidental, they mixed up the fluid or is, is it spilled into the other one? Is that? They suspect that there's cross-contamination going on. They don't know why, but because mm-hmm. they inspected other planes and they found it and they even found this in another airline. Like they're inspecting planes that didn't crash and they see that, you know, this, there's this cross-contamination of fluids. Okay. So it's not specifically because of this crash because they're finding it in other planes that are still yeah. flying. Due to the heat caused by the dragging of the wheels, the seals that held the fluid degraded and caused the fluid to leak onto the brake assemblies. And under these conditions, the contaminated fluid would have self-ignited at temperatures exceeding 425 degrees Celsius. And remember, we said that it reached 600 based on the scoring on the brakes. So because of the slower flash point, the tires ignited when exposed to flame, these conditions were sufficient to perpetuate the cycle and to continue to raise the temperature in the wheel well, causing the aircraft hydraulic system to fail and damaging electrical wiring and other systems in the wheel well, like you said, it's what caused the light to turn off. It's not that the problem went away. It's just uh-huh. that the electrical wiring failed because it all melted. It got worse. Right. It's like, oh, no, the problem's off. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's way worse now. It's like <laughs> if you ignore your check engine light so long that like the light bulb burns out. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> that, that no, just, the problem itself. Yeah, it doesn't mean the problem's gone. <laughs> it means that your problem's still there. You just Your indicator of it uh, is no longer working. It was not determined why there was a loss of main hydraulics. However, the loss was undoubtedly related to the fire or intense heat in the wheel well. Heat could have ruptured the hydraulic hoses or damaged seals in the hydraulic components to the extent that the hydraulic pressure and fluid were lost. Like I said, they can't definitively 100% say that that's what happened, but most likely the fire caused the, um, the hydraulic system to fail, either through damaging the hoses or the seals. The left wing overheat light came on approximately 90 seconds after the indication of hydraulic failure. The light's continuous rather than flashing illumination indicated overheating in the wheel well or the air conditioning duct. But before the crew initiated the checklist procedures, the light went out, indicating the wing was no longer overheating. However, the light was very likely went out, not because the overheating problem mm-hmm. was corrected, but because the fire destroyed the warning system electrical circuit, just like we said. The initial event in the breakup sequence was the failure of the front wing spar caused by intense heat. The twisting motion of the rear spar suggests that its failure was subsequent to the upwards failure of the front spar. So like that would be where the wing connects to the fuselage. So what they're saying is most likely the front connection failed, the wing started flipping up, twisting the rear spar and caused it to fail. And that's why that left wing snapped off. Mm. And then because the left wing was gone, they then get asymmetrical lift because the right wing is still providing lift. That's why it went up, the airplane rolled and rotated to the left, and this rotation released the left landing gear pivot pin, allowing the landing gear to fall onto the runway, gouging the runway surface, and the rotation of the fuselage to the left might have initiated a movement to the right, which might account for the landing gear being found on the right side of the runway. So it it just threw the landing gear clear. Uh, And then the aircraft struck the runway on its left side and slid for 2,500 feet. I thought one of the more interesting things about this incident before we get to the recommendations mm-hmm. was that, you know, I said, I, I kept talking about how they were, they kept having to put right aileron and they were having, you know, to struggle with the plane. And part of it, you know, is having to do with the engines. But if you think about it, you know, I guess they were having to put an unusual amount in to keep the plane straight. And one of the things that they discovered was that because of the fire in the left wing, it had started kind of warping the, the shape of the left wing, 
which is giving it more drag, which is contributing on top of the asymmetric thrust. It was like another contributing factor as to why they were having to try to fight with the plane so much to keep it going straight. Like the heat was warping? Right. Like the metal was softening and starting to warp. And you see, that's why ultimately it failed 25 feet above the ground. It was just like the, the shapes of the wings weren't the same. It was slightly off. And that's on top of one engine being shut down and on fire. You know, that's another reason that they had to struggle with the plane in order to keep it okay, straight. Yeah, because, yeah, it's just a lot of pressure and heat. and. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, the findings uh, in this report, numerous previous instances of break overheating or fire on SA-226 and SA-227 aircraft had the potential for equally tragic consequences not all crews flying this type of aircraft are aware of its history of numerous brake overheating or fire problems. The aircraft flight manual and the emergency procedure checklist provide no information on the possibility of brake overheating, precautions to prevent brake overheating, the symptoms that could indicate brake problems, or actions to take if overheated brakes are suspected. More stringent fire blocking requirements would have retarded combustion of the seats, reducing the fire risk to aircraft occupants. So that's having to deal with like the... The materials inside yeah. the plane, you know, making them take longer to actually combust, which would have delayed the creation of toxic gases, which might have, uh, you know, given people time to mm-hmm. either escape or be rescued. Yeah, A mixture of the two types of hydraulic fluid lowered the temperature at which the fluid would ignite. That is below the flash point of pure MIL H83282 fluid. And again, that's like there was cross-contamination in those fluids and in those liquids, which is what caused it to ignite at a lower temperature than it should have. The aircraft maintenance manual indicated that the two hydraulic fluids were compatible, but did not mention that mixing them would reduce the fire resistance of the fluid. Although the emergency checklist for overheating in the wing required extending the landing gear, the crew did not do this because the left wing overheat light went out before the crew initiated the checklist. So if they had gone to the checklist, it would have told them to extend the gear, but they didn't do it because they didn't get to the checklist. It's possible if they extended the gear, they could have, like, if there was the tire that was on fire in that part, they could have moved it away, like a little further away. And maybe the, the speed of the wind hitting it would have put it out. But is there is there a chance that extending it could have provided a lot more oxygen to the fire that was already in the plane? I mean, it's possible, but it was already on fire. It already had sufficient uh-uh. oxygen. I think the hope is that you give it a bunch of wind. So it's like blowing a candle out. Yeah. You give it like so much airspeed that the fire goes out. Like, you know, I'm taking mm-hmm. flying lessons. Like one of the lessons or one of the, the checklist items, if you have an engine fire in flight, is you're supposed to like nose down and exceed like 110 knots of airspeed over the engine to try to extinguish the fire. Okay. So it's a, it's, it's a common yeah. thing when you have a, a fire on a plane is to try to hit it with a bunch of wind and hopefully that puts it out. Okay. Another finding here. The effect of the fire in the wheel well made it difficult to move the ailerons, but the exact cause of the difficulty was not determined. Yeah, I can't give any more insight on that. I don't know, you know, why. And again, you know, if they don't know, I'm not going to be able to give you any insight on that. I'm not like, I don't know why I'm like, well, I can't give you any insight on that. I feel bad about it. It's like, well, if the professionals couldn't figure out, I mean, I, I have no chance of figuring that out. And uh, there's some findings as to causes and contributing factors. The crew did not realize that the pull to the left and the extended takeoff run were due to the left brakes dragging, which led to overheating of the brake components. I don't think that the report ever mentions this. And, you know, I'm not trying to, like, place blame here. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in case you're wondering, like, why did the pilots not notice that it was dragging or that it took longer? The first officer was flying during the takeoff run and the captain was actually doing a line check on him. So the captain had more experience but the first officer was, you know, he was new to prop air. So 
he was taking off and the captain was paying attention to him instead of paying uh-huh. attention to the plane. It's speculated that if the captain was doing the takeoff, since he had more experience, he might have, you know, been a little weirded out and noticed that something was a little off. But uh-huh. again, that's just speculation. I'm not trying to put any blame yeah. on either of them here. It's just there is some speculation that they, that may have, you know, been a, like a really tangential factor to it. Dragging of the left brakes was most probably caused by an unidentified pressure locking factor upstream of the brakes on takeoff. The dragging caused overheating and leakage, probably at one of the piston seals that retained brake hydraulic fluid. When the hydraulic fluid leaked onto the hot brake components, the fluid caught fire and initiated an intense fire in the left nasal, leading to failure of the main hydraulic system. When the left wing overheat light went out, the overheating problem appeared corrected. However, the fire continued to burn. The crew never realized that all of the problems were associated with the fire in the wheel well, and they did not realize how serious the situation was. And we've talked about this kind of thing before in other Mm -hmm. episodes where when there's a fire on board, it can lead to a bunch of different errors that don't seem to all be connected. But it's like, oh, it's like it's a fire that's the source of all of these weird errors that you might be getting. Because it just kind of messes everything up. Right. It destroys sensors. um, It gives you, you know, conflicting error messages or in this case, uh, warnings that, that disappear. It's just really a like an awful problem to have. Yeah. Then the last one here is the left wing was weakened by the wing engine fire and failed, rendering the aircraft uncontrollable. And of course, there's a few recommendations here. The aircraft flight manual must be amended to reflect the following. The susceptibility of the brake system on Metroliners to overheating, the precautions to deal with or prevent overheating, the symptoms of potential problematic brake systems, and the fact that overheated brakes can cause wheel well fires that a left or right wing overheat warning light may indicate a wheel well fire and that there are other key symptoms associated with left or right wing overheat light that are indicative of an onboard fire. Like we said, (laughs) there's other symptoms that may uh, pop up because of a fire. And the actions to be followed in conjunction with the emergency procedure for wheel well and wing overheat warning light on to effectively handle the possibility of a wheel well fire. The next recommendation here, uh, Transport Canada consult with the FAA regarding a timely amendment of the aircraft flight manual for the Fairchild uh, SA-226-227 Metroliner to have the manual specify the risk of wheel well fires caused by overheated brakes and include procedures to both mitigate this risk and address emergency situations of actual and potential wheel well fires. Transport Canada, in consultation with the Federal Aviation Administration and the aircraft manufacturer, Explore options for the installation of brake temperature or overheat detection systems on Fairchild SA-226 and 227 aircraft. And Transport Canada, in consultation with the FAA and the aircraft manufacturer, explore means to protect or otherwise harden the hydraulic and fuel lines in wheel wells to minimize the damage to these lines in the event of bursting tires or wheel well fires. And I think that's actually a super key one, is like to harden and strengthen those hydraulic and fuel lines that pass by the wheel wells. Because mm. you know, we've seen this before, tires can catch fire, yeah. tires can burst, it can, it can damage them. You know, it's just, it just seems smart. Like, this is obviously a potential failure point. You know, they, these lines need to be extra strengthened in these areas. Yeah. And the last recommendation here, Transport Canada, as a matter of urgency, notify all Canadian operators of Fairchild SA-226 and 227 aircraft of the importance of and requirement for using only MIL H83282 hydraulic fluid in the main and brake hydraulic systems of these aircraft, and Transport Canada, in consultation with the FAA and aircraft manufacturer, review the adequacy of existing aircraft standards, procedures, manuals, and maintenance practices for the Fairchild SA-226, SA-227 aircraft, with an aim to ensuring that only MIL H83282 hydraulic fluid is used in the main and brake hydraulic systems on these aircraft. I think this was also an important one. Mm -hmm. I think 
it was known amongst maintenance people that the different kinds of hydraulic fluid, like we said, the other one that contaminated it, that these had similar enough properties that you could use them interchangeably. But obviously the other one lowers the flash point. So I think this mm-hmm. was like to reinforce, do not Don't mix, mix these them. hydraulic fluids. <laughs> yeah. This like, they, yeah, the other one will work and will, you know, it can get the job done, but there's a reason you have to use this specific one yeah. in these systems. I would never do that for the record. I'd never be like, yeah, we'll just mix this one with um, it. I mean, but that's also because I don't know nothing about like cars and things. So I'm not going to like, mix. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, fluids. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here. I'm sure, you know, these maintenance people don't want to do it either, but I'm sure they're in situations where like, oh my God, you know, we got to get this plane fixed. We got it. It has to go. It has to fly. You know, this stuff will work fine. Yeah. You know, we're, we're out of the other fluid. You know, this is what we have right now. You know, we'll, we'll deal with it down the road, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's also one of those things too, where it's like, I think there's that level of lack of knowledge where you don't want to, you don't know what you're doing. So you don't, uh, you follow the rules to the T versus when you do know what you're doing. You, yeah. You might understand that, oh, well, this is pretty much the same. Right. I mean, the closest example I could give is if like your oil pressure light came on in your car and you're looking uh-huh. at it and you're like, well, I don't know what kind of oil's in there. I'll just buy whatever motor oil I and top it off. Like it's probably this and you put it in there without knowing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interchangeable. It's probably not going to cause a problem, but you shouldn't do that. You know, Yeah. <laughs> like you need to find out what you have in there. I mean, I, I granted it's not an exact comparison, but I, I'm trying to think of like something that, you know, you may, uh-huh. a, an average person may have encountered in their lifetime in dealing with, you know, interchangeable fluids on their car. But man, yeah, that's it. That's uh, Prop Air Flight 420. It was more depressing than I thought it would be to uh, research this one. This one, I think, made me feel even worse than a normal episode because they were so close to landing it. Like, I yeah. feel so bad for those pilots. Like, they, you know, they saw the runway, they were over the runway, they were just above. The airport or above where they needed to land, they thought they had made it. You know, at that point, you're like, you know, you're like, thank God we're about to land. We've we've saved it. We've saved the day. And it all just in an instant, it all goes haywire. Yeah. Well, when you were just doing the opening, I was like, oh, they I thought they were all going to be OK. Yeah. It, it like seconds away from a totally different outcome on it. I know. And then and when you said they all died, I was like, what? Yeah. And and again, it's not like there was negligence on the pilot's part. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, you know, they saw a problem. They started to turn around immediately. They diverted to a closer airport. It's just, it was so close to being averted. It was so close to us not talking about this on this I podcast know. and those people, you know, still being alive. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was strangely depressing to read this one and to research this one, especially I think because like, you know, we've talked about before, I've been taking pilot lessons and like, I can't imagine encountering a problem. And then being so close to landing, and then it just like, oh, no, it didn't work. Through no fault of your own. Yeah. Man, it's, uh, yeah, this was, uh, I didn't like this one, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I, can, I, I, can say, I can say that. So, I mean, I guess the, coming out, I mean, it was just like, what's the biggest change or fault, I guess? I think, you know, the changes that are the most important here, you know, like we talked about, Hardening those Harden, those those just, lines and those systems, making sure seems that like little right little, little things. things. Like you know, that's the thing that's frustrating. It's not like <laughs> oh well, there's this big error that got fixed. There's all these like little bitty things. Yeah. Like oh, and that's why I'm like, it almost seems like it's no one's fault, right? Right. Yeah. It's like it's oh, just like a lot of little things. Yeah. It's hard it's like, to like point a finger. Yeah. Maybe that's another reason I find it so frustrating. It's like 
Yeah, there's no like one big sweeping, this happened and this got fixed and this will never happen again. It's like, well, yeah. no, that's going to be like, we're not going to mix hydraulic fluids, going to tell people that the brakes are a little finicky sometimes. <laughs> you know, if, the, if, like, yeah, if the overheat light comes on, you're going to go ahead and run the checklist. It's, <laughs> just be aware yeah. that there may be a fire. Like there is no like miracle cure for this one. And it's they didn't, a, yeah, because they didn't like drastically change the plane, right? Right. I mean, it, that's, the, I guess that's what it's like if you expect something like that, you know, we're like, oh, well, now this plane is no longer, you know, flown and these can, I don't know. Yeah. Or you feel like, oh, if they didn't change the plane a bunch, then it must've been the pilot's fault. But it's like, no, it wasn't yeah. <laughs> like there, there, like you said, there's, you can't really place all the blame somewhere very specifically. I mean, you can blame the brake system, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's tough. I don't know. And it seems like, yeah, like you said, it was a lot of Northern like climate. So yeah. Um, that might also be just, a very, you know, indicative of where the plane is popular. You know, they don't need to move a bunch of people around, maybe smaller airports. Yeah. They don't need as big of a runway. It's hard to say, you know, lots of times planes serve very specific needs, you know, for as far as like moving people around or cargo or whatever. And maybe that's just the need of the Metroliner in this case. But that's it for Prop Air Flight 420. Don't forget, give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got a YouTube with some animation on it too. As Chris reminded me, I forgot already. Uh, <laughs> search for Black Box Down on YouTube. Uh, you can find that. We have a couple of uh, animated episodes that I think are super informative. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Chris, if you thought this was a sad, frustrating one, oh, I don't no. want to oversell it. Next week is even worse. Uh-oh. So... <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week for uh, for another episode of Black Box Down. Oh, and check out our merch and our link tree. Yes, good old link tree. All right, bye. bye.